We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Uh, we have seen David Johnston on uh, he uh, testy uh, testifying at committee. Actually, stayed late and was uh, on for just over three hours earlier today. Canada's special rapporteur uh, on foreign interference, David Johnston, calls the allegations swirling around his objectivity quite simply false and says he plans to push ahead with his work launching public hearings next month. He was questioned by MPs at committee today about his role. Let's bring in David Aiken, chief political correspondent with Global News and here now. David, thank you for your time. Hope you're well. Yeah, not too bad. That's three hours of committee hearings, just what a political reporter likes to do all day long. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so uh, anyway, David, uh, it seems that uh, when defending his position, David, Ch- uh, David Johnston and team talk about his stellar resume, his stellar character, which everybody agrees with. But if you disagree with his position, you are attacking his credibility in some way. Uh, is this a message they're trying to sell? And really not the point. It's, you know, I think everybody agrees that David Johnston's a stellar man. It's the perception of bias that is there because of his relationship with the family and foundation. And I, I equate this much like if you're selecting a jury. It doesn't matter how great a citizen you are. If there's a perception of bias on either side, you're dismissed. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, and so in any conflict of interest uh, situation I've ever written about in you know, 30 years in this business, it's often the perception of conflict of interest that can be as damaging as an actual conflict of interest. And that that certainly was the opinion of the new Democrat leader, Jagmeet Singh. That was the point he tried to make today, saying, listen, you surely must agree any reasonable person could see it a, an appearance of conflict of interest. Johnson rejects it. He says there's no conflict of interest. But what was interesting after the, I mean, this, this was a three-hour committee hearing, and then it, it you know, moved into the House of Commons so that the prime minister and the opposition leader could have at it. And one of the points that Pierre Polyev made in the House of Commons today was he blames the prime minister for basically ruining Johnson's reputation. In other words, that it's the prime minister's fault for putting Johnson in what is a pretty difficult position. And uh, there was all sorts of quizzing at the hearing about Johnson's you know, social relationship with the prime minister over the years, going back to when he was a kid. And, and Johnson and Pierre Trudeau were working on some projects together. Uh, Johnson it was trying to explain he was a member of the Trudeau Foundation. Trudeau Foundation, of course, named after Pierre Trudeau, not Justin. Um, and uh, and it, the Trudeau Foundation is engaged in funding scholars. And Johnson is a two-time university president. So he was naturally interested in work of organizations funding scholars. And, all, and he explained... He was simply a member, which is equivalent to being a shareholder of an organization. You just, you know, you, you get the annual report and you, you vote in the next board of directors. That's it. You're not really in charge. But again, he didn't he didn't explain those in his report. He waited until he got questions about it. Um, and so the opposition is united in saying, you know, there's just so many things you didn't do um, that we would have expected you to do. And, and all of this can be solved with a public inquiry. And that's mm. the nut of, for the opposition is. There's there's all sorts of ways to hold a public inquiry, still protect our secrets. And in holding a public inquiry, that would be the best thing for restoring uh, trust. Uh, 
At the end of the day, David, it doesn't seem like this story is going to change any direction any anytime soon. So what's next? Where does this go? Yeah, it, it doesn't in some ways. But as Johnson himself, at every, you know, through this meeting, whenever he was started to talk about, he was trying to defend himself on bias, he kept coming back to this point. Listen, MPs, lift your head up. What's the issue here? The issue is political interference. It's a serious problem. We got some holes with our, our system. We need to fix it. So please, this is an urgent problem. Let's fix that. That is really the big picture that we ought to be uh, focused on. And he has said, and he's got some criticism for this, he is going to hold some public hearings over the next uh, coming weeks and have a report back in the fall based on these public hearings in which the topic of discussion will be, okay, where do we go from now? Just as you asked, what should we do to prevent the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians from interfering in our elections? So that is that is the real looking forward to. Uh, he hasn't got those hearings sort of in place, hasn't appointed counsel yet, but um, I think he'd be wise to avoid anybody who's ever had any connection with the Trudeau Foundation or ever given a check to the to the Liberal Party of Canada. Why would you change that stance now? <laughs> anyway, uh, what about leader Jagmeet Singh saying, and we he, we had him on the show on Friday, uh, and again, putting the same questions to him, how can you not uh, trust David Johnston, um, uh, yet you do the prime minister, you have confidence, uh, sorry. Uh, and, and he was saying, well, he, now he's going to see the information, the CSIS information that's top secret. Where will that go? What if he still gets in there and says, oh, I can't tell anything, but boy, I want a public inquiry anyway, or I don't. Where does this go? Yeah, well, and, and don't forget, uh, Singh is the, is the only one of the three opposition leaders who has accepted the government's mm-hmm. offer to get that top secret security clearance. Paul, you have to be honest, already has it because he used to be a member of the cabinet, right? He was in Stephen Harper's cabinet. By definition, you get top secret clearance when that happens. Anyhow, um, the point is, Singh's the only one who said, I'll take a look at the top secret stuff that Johnston looked at so that I can assess whether Johnston's conclusions are correct or not. Now, Paul Yev says, I don't want to do that because then I couldn't talk about it, except that Johnston looked at all that top secret stuff, right? And he had some things to say about it. He had the conclusions. He didn't tell you what the top secret secrets were. But he yeah. formed some conclusions and next courses of action. So presumably that is what Singh is going to do. He's going to review what Johnson review, and then he's going to come out and say, well, OK, Johnson, I think he got it right on this part. But I think he missed it on this part or there was a blind spot here. I mean, one thing in the Johnson report, he didn't mention the Trudeau Foundation once. He didn't yeah. mention these Chinese police stations we hear about here in Canada. He didn't mention those once. And so there, there are people who say yeah, there were some blind spots in this report. Maybe that's something. Singh and others on the, this committee, they will say we need we <laughs> we need more work in, in all of these things. Uh, so, uh, and we're being hypothetical here, or I am. If a Singh goes in, sees it, and then comes back out and says, "Yep, still need a public inquiry," um, the the ball's in his court at that point, would it not be? Sort of. The 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 opposition cannot force the government to hold a public inquiry, except by doing this, and that is saying. Because you have not held a public inquiry, putting a motion before the House of Commons, it says, because you have not called a public inquiry, therefore, this House no longer has the confidence of the government. And that is your confidence motion. So Singh would basically have to be saying, I'd rather have an election over this issue or you call this inquiry. And I don't think any politician, as important as this is, do you want to go stumping around the country for six weeks just because there isn't a public inquiry? It's important, and I think it's going to be something that the opposition will prosecute when we do have an election. But usually the last time the NDP was Jack Layton, the last time he triggered an election in a minority 
It was over health care. He thought the Harper government was gutting health care. And that was something that Canadians responded to. And guess what? He became the opposition leader. He, he got all those seats. So if you're going to if you're going to be in the opposition and you're going to try and pull a plug on a parliament, you darn well better have a real good reason that resonates with Canadians. Mm. Michael Ignatieff pulled the plug on parliament against Stephen Harper uh, over the Afghanistan detainee inquiry. It was a real important issue to Michael Ignatieff. But you know what? He got his. Mm got his keister handed to him by Harper because Canadians weren't really that interested in that. That is an electoral issue. So David, same thing here. David Aiken with us, chief political correspondent, Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. As always, David, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Okay, cheers. Were you there June of 1975 when 52,000 people communed in Hamilton to catch Pink Floyd at Iverwin Stadium. I think this is one of those stories like the first Blue Jays game when it snowed. Uh, 52 people or 52,000 people were there, but 520,000 people say they were. Uh, the stories continue. The legacy continues. And now a great story in the Hamilton Spectator written by John Wells, reporter and feature writer for the spec and is with us now. John, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, you too, Scott. I think it's good to be with you again. So this is cool in the way you've done this. You've sort of divided it into three parts and then got antidotes or or uh, fans, uh, every, anybody who was there and lived to tell their story about those uh, those parts and such. How did you come up with this idea? Why did you decide to do this? Basically, uh, I, I did a piece uh, early in the year on um, another sort of infamous or famous concert in Hamilton's history when uh, uh, Pavarotti played, uh, nearly played at, at Cops Coliseum in Kansas yeah. concert. So at, at the last moment, and my editor suggested doing that in that in this sort of format, this kind of oral history format. And um, and uh, anyway, they they, they liked uh, how I wrote that one, and the editor said, "Let's do another one." And someone said, "Well, uh, why not why not do the Pink Floyd concert because that was a, an even uh, far more massive event." And um, so I started chipping away at that. But initially, I, I had trouble finding people who. Who were there? I was on Facebook trying to find some people. I found a couple of people, and then we put out a request on the website asking for uh, anyone who, who who attended, who'd want to talk to me about it. And uh, and to my surprise, I got like over 50 emails from people. Like it was unbelievable. I almost wished I hadn't put out the request because I got so many responses from people who had, uh, uh, you know, great detail from from their their experience of the concert. Uh, you know, and, and these people are now in their you know 60s, 70s, 80s kind of thing. And um, and so it really rolled on from there. How do you separate the fact from fiction, uh, the legacy, the folklore? Because it seems like everything, every great story, it builds with every year. That's that, that's true, and I and I, I I've heard that from people as well. That uh, there's, there's a lot of people who claim they were there who who weren't. I mean, certainly the ones who emailed me. I think I was cognizant of that. But the people who emailed me, uh, you know, uh, had had such uh, vivid uh, memories of it, and 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 talk with it such a. Uh, formative moment, you know, growing up or what have you. That I uh, certainly the ones that I use in the story, at least, I, I was pretty confident that they uh, they were on the level. And in fact, in fact, the ones who are quoted uh, in the story, most of them are ones I actually interviewed on the phone as well. So, uh, so certainly, um, I, I was pretty confident they were they were on the level. And uh, I mean, and and uh, you know, so some of them admitted that there's some of the memories were hazy indeed because of what they were consuming <laughs> that, that that evening. But they were in the building, kind of thing. So what still reverberates? What's the legacy that comes out of that? What, you know, I mean, I'm sure they all had separate stories on uh, depending on what their role was or their involvement or such. But what, what are the common denominators? I, th- I think that one of the, the most interesting themes is, is, the, is, is the, the paradox of the evening about whether it was, as I said in the story, you know, was it a disaster or the greatest night ever? And that the answer was both. Uh, 
because there is this division. I mean, for, for some, it was this it's uh, just a, a terrible uh, idea to have this a concert, 52,000 people uh, camping out uh, for days in advance in, in a neighborhood of, you know, in, in, in Hamilton. Uh, and the, the the garbage and the the noise and all that, and then for others, having this world class uh, band come in and uh, you know the drug use that enhanced the experience and all that 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 it became this this uh, this form of experience kind of thing. So I think one of the themes is just it, it depend it depended what your point of view was at the time as to as to how uh, amazing it really was. Uh, I love the headline. Uh, somebody just killed Pink Floyd. The time 52,000 communed under the Hamilton side of the mood one summer night in 1995. Explain the explosion and what everybody thought it was and that in, in the story. Yeah, so that, you know, Pink Floyd was, was famous back then for using uh, special effects and they were using some explosives for, for, you know, for one of the, I think it's one that had this model, uh, giant model airplane that, that would sort of crash into the stage and there would be a mock explosion. They, and they had explosives for this, but it was the last night of their North American tour. So apparently the, you know, the roadies had a bunch of leftover uh, explosives and one of them uh, decided he would, he would light it off rather than, I guess, packing the suitcases to go back to England. So he goes up at the, the, the nether regions of the stadium near the brand new scoreboard. And he lights it all up, and uh, the explosion uh, created such shockwaves that it blew out windows of uh, homes that were near the stadium. And um, so, you know, I interviewed, I found, the, you know, the, the, the promoter, quite a famous promoter at Rock, uh, Michael Cole. He lives in New York. Yeah. You know, and he, and he, he talked all about this, and he, he confirmed that that's exactly what happened. And, and he's the one who said, you know, he wondered at first when he was down in the bowels of the stadium if, if someone had <laughs> blown up the band kind of thing. And, uh, so this, this, you know, yeah. So this, this certainly ends the evening with a bang. For uh, this was after all the fans had left; they were having a, uh, a party for the band yeah. and uh, the crew on the field when the explosion was lit off. But you know, people were uh, obviously pretty upset who had their had their homes damaged by the explosion. Uh, boy, that story gets better every time I hear it. Um, <laughs> so, and then the out the the fallout afterwards, the garbage, the stuff in the stadium, uh, and the fact that it took the Arkells to come back and do something many years later before we saw music there again. That's right. You know, it, it was interesting looking at the old the old headlines from the spec back at the time. You know, the the counselors calling for you know never again. This will never happen again, kind of thing. And I mean, the uh, the garbage, by all accounts, there was a massive cleanup. You know, the next day or two, it was all it was all it was all picked up. It was all back to normal, kind of thing. But it left. I guess the neighborhood was so traumatized, and the, and the counselors from that area were so outraged that uh, it never happened again. You know, uh, Rush Rush played a concert there uh, several years later, but they limited the uh, ticket sales to to fifteen thousand people. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it took Harkels to come back and play just still less than half of what Pink Floyd had. I mean, it's amazing. Harkels the rally this. Massive show everyone talks about, you know, 25,000 people. That was less than half of the Pink Floyd show. Uh, but that was the next big concert ever held uh, in the neighborhood. Great article on the Hamilton Spectator. Somebody just killed Pink Floyd. The time 52,000 commune under the Hamilton side of the moon one summer night in 1975 by John Wells. John, great story. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks a lot, Scott. You too. Theater Aquarius uh, is set to host a new national program that will develop and launch new Canadian musicals, becoming the home of the National Centre for New Musicals. In a press release, Theater Aquarius says the centre will revolutionize the national and international musical theatre landscape, offering unparalleled opportunity for both established and emerging Canadian composers, lyricists, book writers, and theatre artists. To talk more about all of this, Mary Frances Moore is with us, Artistic Director with Theatre Aquarius, and here now. Mary, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm great. How are you? 
So far, so good, Mary. How did this all come about? How did Theater uh, Theater Aquarius acquire all of this? What happened? Well, when I took over at Theater Aquarius in July 2021, I immediately started getting submissions um, for new new musicals and ideas for musicals. A lot of my experience got in the past decade or so has been um, specifically with the development of new musicals here in Canada. And I've got a long, long, uh, long history with new plays. So it was sort of a natural evolution. And we um, so we have a couple of plays in, in development here. You know, we just finished uh, an incredibly successful run of Maggie here at Aquarius. And we have the world premiere of Pollyanna, the musical, as our holiday show next season, um, over the holiday season. And then Tom Wilson's Beautiful Scars, the musical version of that. So mm. it kind of felt like a natural evolution. And so we decided if we're going to do it, um, what better time than on the success of Maggie when we have a lot of attention from across the country and internationally um, on what we're doing. What's the process? How do you uh, acquire a, a successful template for this? Oh, that's a great question. You know, there, it's a, there's a variety of different ways. One of it, um, we're so lucky because of our relationships in the community. Uh, we were able to bring on board Michael Rubinoff. He's the originating producer of Come From Away. So Michael is going to co-chair with mm. us here at Theatre Aquarius. Um, and he was also one of the producers on, on Maggie and last year's uh, production of Telltale Harbor at the Charlottetown Festival. So he's had a lot of really, um, he, he's had a lot of really interesting you know, things going on in the music theater community right now. Um, and we have an incredible advisory as well made up of Lily Ling. She was uh, one of the music directors of Hamilton the Musical, not Hamilton the City, on Broadway. Mm-hmm. And Sean Mays, who's just been uh, MDing on um, MJ on Broadway as well. They're, they're both Canadians um, working on Broadway. So we've got some exciting people who just bring a, a real wealth of experience and a really interesting perspective on stories and storytelling. It almost sounds like musical 101. You know what? It is a bit. You know, so the thing that we're trying to do, because there's so many great companies in the country who actually are committing themselves to doing the development of new musicals. But what's different about this program, Scott, is we don't necessarily have to produce it as a play. What Mm. we'll do is we'll give artists, you know, composers, lyricists, book writers, opportunities to develop their work. And it might be something that we don't actually produce ever. Um, But what we can do is we can say, hey, why don't you send it to this play in uh, this theater in England or send it to this theater in Vancouver? And we can use our relationships to support it. But we can also take, you know, something that's as simple as an idea for a musical and help foster that and develop it. Or we may t- might take a show that's already had a production elsewhere and help bring it to the next level. So we're sort of creating, we're, we're receiving the project and then seeing what the needs of each individual project are. My next question was going to be how long the process, but that depends on the project and what you're doing, what, uh, what you're trying to create here. It is, you know, so we're trying to create a framework, but also speak to the needs of each project. So that's, you know, um, not to sound too artsy-fartsy about it, but it will be a fluid process. <laughs> um, but, you know, the great thing is, is we have, you know, the team that we have on board to help um, launch the program has decades and decades and decades ex- of experience doing this. And what we'll also do is we'll also be able to bring in other artists, both nationally, locally and internationally, to help support and mentor these artists as well. So it might be Music Theatre 101 for some pers- you know, for some mm-hmm groups and then it might also be something that's quite of another level depending on the needs of the show where do you hope for this to be in say one to three years you know scott i think the big thing for us is the relationships that we will be able to help cultivate and develop so you know if 
the average musical takes up to 10 years to be developed. You know, so for Maggie, we worked on that for eight years before it premiered here at Theater Aquarius last month. Um, So in one to three years, we're going to have started some great conversations and we'll have started some great work. Uh, If we are close to producing a play by then, that will be fantastic. But mostly it will be about the relationships that we started to develop. And I think really branding this city um, as, as a place where people come to have their work developed, just the economic impact that the, the international village here downtown had with the success of Maggie, we, we were able to really see the immediate impact that had on parking, restaurants, shopping, audience experience. So, you know, if we're, if we're bringing Hamilton um, more folks, we're happy. Mm. Uh, theater, a different world now post-pandemic. Yeah, very much. You know, um, we're, we've, we get to redefine how we do theater. We, you know, we're, we're coming back. Um, we're as equally excited about it. Uh, Maggie showed us that audiences are ready to come back. We were able to bring in new folks who've never been to this theater before. Um, and I think we're hoping to encourage people who haven't been back yet um, with some different types of programming. But and if and when people are ready to come back, we'll be here. We're launching our 50th season in September. So we're not going anywhere. So when people are ready, we'll be here. But in the meantime, we've got some really exciting initiatives to, to sort of say we're back. We're live. There's there's nothing like a live experience sitting in a theater full of people sharing an experience of a song or a story. It's not like, you know, it's not live streaming. It's live. <laughs> That's true. Theater Aquarius set to host a new national program that will develop and launch new Canadian musicals, becoming the home of the National Center for New Musicals. Mary Frances Moore with us, artistic director with Theater Aquarius. Mary, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Thank you so much. See you soon. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We were talking yesterday with uh, Tim Danson, lawyer for the French and Mahaffey families, about the news that Paul Bernardo had been moved from a maximum security prison to a a medium security prison to join us uh, and talk more about all of this is Tom Blackwell. He was a reporter for the Canadian press and covered the trial of Paul Bernardo. Uh, And you can imagine what kind of experience that was. I've talked to a couple of reporters who did that back in the day. Tom Blackwell is with us now, former reporter with the national post and the Canadian press and with us now, Tom, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, I am. Thanks for having me. So, Tom, what was your thoughts when you first heard this story that uh, he had been moved to a medium security prison? Yeah, well, I mean, my first thought was sort of what the, the thought, kind of thought that I have uh, whenever Paul Bernardo's name kind of pops up in the news, which is basically uh, I'd rather that not have happened. You know, I, I sort of try my best not to not to think too much about that uh, that case and that story. It was a pretty awful thing to to have to cover. Um, so it's uh, n- never uh, n- never happy when when his name comes up. But you know, I think like uh, like everyone else, I was also you know quite surprised to, to hear the news, and uh, you know certainly it seemed to raise questions about uh, why this decision was made and and you know uh, what criteria were considered that that, that kind of thing. So yeah, it, it definitely uh, was not expected uh, by me. Um, I think what surprised me most, and I remember uh, covering this way back when, um, the, and talking with Tim Danson, the lawyer for the French Mahaffey family, saying, and the work he did to have him declared, uh, Bernardo declared a dangerous offender. And we thought, wow, with that, you know, it'll help with the parole stuff and what have you. I mean, nobody ever thought of 
moving from a maximum to a, a medium security prison. I mean, that was never brought up. What about the whole dangerous offender thing? And, and what's the significance of that if here we have what we have? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I guess with the dangerous offender um, designation and uh, a life sentence, I mean, it, it doesn't, I mean, this is maybe the key thing to remember. It doesn't specify what sort of prison you're held in. Um, mm. That you know w- w- where you go is is up to the uh, correctional service of Canada. Uh, they make those decisions. You're not sentenced to you know like like, like uh, in the past to you know uh, 25 years of hard labor or, or whatever. Um, so there's no there's no guarantee that even the worst criminals will uh, end up staying in a, in a maximum security prison. And, and same with uh, someone designated uh, a dangerous offender. Um, but, you know, it, it seems like there's some exceptional um, circumstances around this case um, in terms of the nature of the crime and, and, and the criminal and, and the fact that the, the, you know, the families of the victims have made their their voice, you know, uh, very much heard in, in this case and, and, and have really made us, you know, uh, realize how much pain th- this has brought them. Um, so in in that in that context, uh, you wonder if that if that you know was a uh, a consideration or not for the for the correctional service. It certainly seems we're seeing a lot of politicians speak out about this now, and then we're hearing a review will take place, uh, which makes you beg the question: Why did the review not take place before the move actually happened? Are you surprised that nobody was really consulted on any of this, and it kind of happened, and now we have to undo it? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, when the decision is made by the parole board, that that's an independent body um, that acts sort of essentially like you know, like a judge or a jury, and and is supposed to be independent from bureaucracy and and uh, um, and politics. Um, but this is a decision that was made by the bureaucrats w- within the Correctional Service of Canada, you know, who have quite a bit of discretion. Um, so yeah, you, you sort of wonder. <laughs> Uh, why that decision wasn't sort of vetted, you know, perhaps with the uh, uh, with with the uh, political level with with the minister, um, and and certainly, you know, given the feelings that have been very clearly um, uh, voiced by by the families of the victims, it, it seems, if nothing else, um, a little bit sort of tone deaf to to their mm. to their feelings, um, and I know that the director of the correctional service has. Said, I think that they did take into account uh, the victims and victims' families, but you do sort of wonder to what extent that was mm. that was considered. Do you think this will be reversed, Tom? Well, I, I, <laughs> there certainly seems to be uh, a lot of pressure on them to uh, to reverse this decision. So it'll it'll definitely be interesting to see what happens. I mean, when even the the minister uh, that oversees. Uh, Corrections Canada sort of expresses, uh, you know, kind of outrage at the decision. I mean, that 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 tells you something. Um, I, I think there will be a lot of pressure on them to to change this. Um, and uh, yeah, it'll it'll be very interesting to see how they respond. Only got a few uh, less than a minute left. What was it like to be in the courtroom and cover this? It was, yeah. It, it, I mean, it, it was definitely one of the biggest stories. Uh, I've ever covered in, in, in terms of news value and, and attention, you know, riveted the, the country, I think, for, for, for weeks, if not months at a time. Um, but it was also, uh, you know, it was pretty awful 
it, you yeah. know, this is one of the first, uh, perhaps the first uh, criminal trial in Canada that used video evidence ex- extensively. And and yeah. I, I'm actually thankful that that the judge ruled that the the, the worst of the videos, you know, depicting what happened to the to the uh, victims, we were not shown to the broader courtroom to the media. But even even given that, it, it was you know pretty hard to to listen to some of the evidence and to and to hear you know uh, the the accused on, on the stand t- talking about that stuff. Um, you, you know, it was uh, yeah, it was quite an endurance uh, feat, I think. Which, again, only uh, reinforces what the family must be going through. Tom Blackwell with us, former reporter with the National Post and the Canadian Press, covered uh, the story of Paul Bernardo and reacting to him being moved to a medium security facility. Tom, thanks so much for sharing your uh, stories. Much appreciated. Be well. Okay, thank you. Canada's special rapporteur on foreign interference, David Johnson, calls the allegations around his objectivity uh, simply false. And, you know, we talked about this. He's at committee today testifying. And um, we talked about this yesterday in regard to him having a crisis communications firm working with him and, and to craft the message and such. And I think we saw that today. And that is, uh, it appears that David Johnson just keeps selling his resume and his stellar uh, uh, record, which, you know, you're not going to find too many people who disagree with that. Um, but whenever you question why he's doing what he's doing or the decisions he's made, rather than telling you, he goes, well, I've got a stellar reputation and such. And uh, I, I think some uh, the, the rest of the country is on the opposite page. It's not about his stellar reputation. Everybody knows he's got a stellar reputation. It's about the perception of bias. It's like when you're selecting a jury. If you know the family, if you know that you're on the committee or whatever, you, you, you thank you very much, but you're dismissed. And yet, whenever you criticize or ask questions about his decisions, he says, he starts talking about his objectivity. That's not really the debate. It's, there's already a perception of bias. So we have to move on. Let's bring in Genevieve Tellier, uh, Jean-Bieb Tellier, a professor at School of Political Studies, University of Ottawa, and with us now. Jean-Bieb, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well. Thanks for the invitation. You heard my preamble, uh, Jean-Bieb. It seems that whenever uh, anybody questions David Johnston's, uh, what he's doing or his decisions, he goes to his credibility. Uh, that doesn't seem to be the issue. Everybody thinks he's credible. It's that there's the possibility of a perceived bias here, but yet they keep selling the record. Your thoughts? I agree with everything that you said. And uh, during the committee today, some member asked him, could you define what is a bias or a perception of bias uh, for us? And uh, he said, I think his answer was, well, if you don't, if you're not truthful, that, then you would be in a biased position. And so even that definition is a very satisfactory. And so I don't think that David Johnson really realized the issue here. Uh, yes, he, he built on his credibility, on his past record, uh, but at the fa- same time, and I think we forget that, at the same time, he's a former uh, governor general, and in such a position, his role at the time was to advise the prime minister, and so he's not there to advise other person, he's not there for the public, for the MPs, he's mostly there for the prime minister, and I think that shows uh, precisely, and we have a, an example today with this testimony, and basically he was saying to us, uh, trust me, 
uh, I will go to the heart of the matter. I will bring some satisfactory satisfactory recommendation or findings and, and believe in me and I will do the job. But people don't really believe in and uh, are skeptical about what he's able to do. And I don't think he realized that. So that's the main issue in my view. Uh, I use the analogy of selecting a jury. You know, somebody comes in for a trial, there's a pool, you pick the person that is unbiased, everybody gets to question, uh, prosecution, uh, defense and such. And I mean, it would be like saying to a prospective jury, you're a great candidate, you're a model citizen, you're everything, except there's a perception of bias here because you're too close to the subject and they would be mm-hmm. dismissed. How mm-hmm. is David Johnston being insulted? Because it sounds like he feels he's being insulted if people bring up a perception of bias. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, and I would even go one step further, and that's why I don't understand his recommendation not to go with the public inquiry, because that would have been the, the door for him and, and a way to, to get out of this mess. It would have been to say, I am for a public inquiry or public commission because it will be somebody else who would do the job and not me, and I would have done my own job with my recommendation, and it would stop here, and then we could go and do some other thing. And so it seems that he wants to stay stay on the job. And that's what we don't understand is how come against all odds, against everybody, everybody is telling him you should leave. The only person that says stay there is, is the prime minister. But uh, apart from that, and even today, Jack Singh went to the committee today to repeat that message. And he doesn't listen to that. And so uh, I wonder, maybe he thinks he's on the mission and that uh, he's the, mm. the person that could uncover everything that has to be uncovered and do the job well. But the fact is that this is not true. There are many persons that could do the job. And and I would even go one step further. Um, I'm kind of a bit um, uh, uh, puzzled by the fact that we always seem to ask the same person person to to run commissions and so mm. often it's uh, they are former justice uh supreme court justice uh david johnson or other they all come from the law background and in that case uh, i wonder why don't we have an expert on uh electoral uh interference and and somebody that is knowledgeable on on those issues uh that is not close to to, to that are is not the usual suspect i would say and so with and that would bring another perspective and that that's another element i think into the picture into the story uh, about uh, yes why is david johnson was first appointed and why does he want to remain there and i'm not sure he's the right person to do the job now let me take it one step farther john biev um uh the fact that for me he cannot see the conflict the perceived bias nothing against his stellar reputation great man mm-hmm. But there is a perception of bias here. The fact that he cannot see that or won't admit it, to me, that makes me more skeptical. And that this is way more, this is about way more than uh, election interference by the Chinese Communist Party, that this somehow is, is pulling a thread of a bigger picture, whether it's the, the Laurentian elite or whatever's going on. This is, this is the tip of the iceberg. This is holding something. Uh, that could expose a greater a greater scandal, a greater uh, truth. Am mm-hmm. I bar? Am I just fantasizing here? 
No, no, I don't think so. Uh, the thing that he is blind to what everybody else is, is is saying, that's that's the main issue. And how come it's that it's that the case? And so why do we see his contribution so valuable that he will endure every criticism? It was not a fun day for him today. And so he had the three long hours of questioning, but he still wants to remain on, on the job. And so how come he, he persists into that? Uh, that for me also is, is, is another issue. And so it's difficult to understand. And also uh, another point I, wa- I want to add is that his his perception of the role of MPs and Michael Chung was very, very effective today on, on the committee because he was saying, well, our job is to hold government to account and we are not able to do so and you don't help us to, to do so. And how could you justify to remain on the job when the majority of MP have said that they don't have confidence in you. If it would have been the prime minister, he would have been obligated to resign and we would have had a new election. Uh, but because it is David Johnson, a special rapporteur, we don't really know what it is exactly, um, then he, he does. It, it, then it's something else. And so for me, that that's, is very concerning. And the response, the reply of David Johnson was, yes, I understand your motion. I, I take act of your motion, but your motion was vote on a false on false base allegation and that's very strong mm. of a statement and so how could you say that to MPs uh, that their own perception is wrong and he's he's right and everybody else uh, 338 MPs are are wrong or about are wrong so uh, that's also is a big concern I uh, got about a minute left here. Uh, Jugmeet Singh said uh, he's got leverage here, uh, and he's still demanding he David Johnston step down in a public inquiry. Uh, he told me on Friday that uh, he's doing all this until he sees the top secret information. What if he sees the top uh, top secret information and says we still need a public inquiry? Where do we go? Oh, that's a big problem. Then we need a public inquiry, and yes, and so that, that that's why it's 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 a yes. That's why David Johnson is no more the the the, the man of the situation, the person of the situation, and yes, and so and and everything is possible because since the beginning of that story, we have seen everything, and it's not the end of it. And I suspect that other leaks will come because they have come on regular basis, and and yes, so Jack Benson on on the. One abandoned is 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 is, um, is is what he's asking for, but at the same time, I think he's somewhat limited because uh, I'm not sure he wants to defeat the government on that, and so he will continue to 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 keep that story alive. But at the same time, will that be a ballot box, uh, ballot vote? issue i'm not sure uh and and so how much the public will follow jack Betzing that remains to be seen but uh, yes of course what you say it could be very problematic for david johnson and and that may be yes a possibility because in committee today many mps have pointed to some discrepancy between the uh, david johnson report and what the committee have heard from other witnesses so yes Mm. there are some troubling things they are not major but sufficient to raise more questions on the report of David Johnson. Javier Tellier with us, Professor of School of Political Studies, University of Ottawa, talking about the testimony of David Johnston today at uh, committee. Uh, Javier, as always, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Thank you very much. 900 CHML. It's Hamilton Today. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. A Bimbrook resident convicted of fatally shooting a Six Nations man almost seven years ago has been given an eight-year sentence by an Ontario judge. 
Uh, Peter Cahill returned to a Hamilton court after being found guilty by a jury last year of manslaughter in the February 2016 death of Jonathan Stiers. Justice Andrew Goldman delivered his sentence to a courtroom packed with members of Stiers and Cahill's families. To talk more about this, Lisa Pileski with us, reporter with 900 CHML and here now. Lisa, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Uh, What was it like for you in the courtroom today? What was that atmosphere like? Well, it was uh, interesting. I mean, it's been a long time that this whole situation has been in court, as we uh, know that Peter Cahill was found not guilty of second-degree murder back in 2018. Um, However, that uh, acquittal was overturned by the Ontario Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court um, due to the way that the judge had instructed the jury in that case. So a new trial was ordered, and it was held last year, and uh, the jury found him uh, guilty of manslaughter, not guilty of second degree murder. So that kind of removes the uh, the planned intention behind his uh, the killing. So it's, you know, Stiers, Jonathan Stiers family has been through this. Peter Cahill's family has been going through this all over the past seven years. It's been a lot of court appearances for both of them. And so, you know, finally, it seems like Maybe it's come to an end uh, with the uh, the sentence for eight years in prison for uh, Peter Cahill. Um, however, we did learn today that uh, Cahill will be uh, appealing the uh, the conviction. So, so I, we spoke. I spoke with uh, Lindsay Hill, who was Jonathan Steyer's partner, and she said it just feels like this is never over. It just keeps mm. going. So. Yeah, I remember the prime minister spoke out initially on this, and 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 then it kept it just came to continue on. Uh, one of my questions was: This has been a long road. What about the appeal process now? How will that make this road longer? Well, I mean, he can appeal the uh, the conviction. You know, he's been sentenced at this point to uh, to those eight years, uh, but it's not necessarily a guarantee that he's going to need to serve all those years. I mean, certainly we we see people uh, have, they're able to spend less time in prison if they're you know good behavior. And part of in Justice Goodman's de- decision, he did cite the fact that Peter Cahill had no criminal record. This is his first encounter with the law, and uh, he. He had 57 character references. Uh, Goodman said that was the most character references he's ever seen in his entire history of being a judge. So, you know, there was there's it it seems like uh, Lindsay Hill's kind of trepidation about this coming to an end and, and finding some closure about this situation. You know, maybe there is reason to believe that it is could continue on. And the courtroom packed today. Yeah, so there were uh, plenty of people on both sides, and it's kind of been the same crowd of people coming out over the uh, mm. the, the the same years. You know, you've got uh, Melinda Cahill, who is uh, uh, Peter's wife. She, you know, she was there. She didn't speak to media, but then you have all the people on uh, on Jonathan Steyer's side. You know, Chief Mark Hill of Six Nations was there. He spoke with media as well and kind of talked about how this whole situation is. It's it, it really does shed a light on the. Uh, uh, the problems with the justice system, the fact that people who are victims of, of violent crimes and their family members can't really begin to recover from the pain because they just have to keep reliving the, the incident over and over in court. 
So what happens, Lisa, during the appeal process and things like time served, any of that? What what's the what's the process moving forward? So I can't actually speak to that because uh, we don't know too many details about that. Jeffrey Manishin was uh, Peter Cahill's lawyer during this particular trial, but he uh, apparently told media outside the courtroom that he will not be representing Cahill in the the appeal. So I, I can't speak to that, unfortunately, mm. and how that's going to go. But uh, definitely we'll be covering it for sure. All right, Lisa Pileski with us, reporter with 900 CHML in the courtroom today uh, in regard to uh, the Peter Cahill returning to court and uh, being sentenced today in the death of uh, Jonathan Stiers. Lisa, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks. You too. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Have you noticed we haven't heard an awful lot about Ontario teachers and the government and contract negotiations? Uh, rumor has it they were trying to keep everything uh, behind closed doors. Not good enough for Colin DeMello, man. He's in there. And the government, we hear, is offering Ontario's public elementary teachers a 5% pay increase over four years, Global News has learned, as contract talks between educators and government continues. Uh, key details of confidential contract offers uh, leaked to Global News show a significant gap between the province's position and that of the ETFO, the uh, Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, whether it's compensation, class size, and remote learning. Colin DeMello with us, with his nose to the grindstone, Queen's Park Bureau Chief Global News. Colin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. So I don't want you to, you know, expose your sources or ever, but how do you guys get this information when apparently we heard this was all going to be top secret, but uh, you got your ear to the wall here. What are you hearing? Yeah, I, I mean, in this case, you know, we we had a leak. Um, the the union had sent out some of these materials uh, far and wide, and and, and somebody felt that uh, you know this should be public information and not kind of uh, confidential. But but it, it goes to show, though, this document that there is a, a huge gap between what the government is offering and what the union is offering, and it doesn't necessarily bode well for where these contract talks are going to go. On one hand, when it comes to compensation, which is always a, you know a big sticking point with anyone, the government is offering teachers a 1.25% increase for every year of their four-year contract. So that works out to about 5% over the course of this four-year contract. The union, though, wants a lot more. They say they want a cost-of-living increase, which is reflective of inflation, plus 1% on top of that. And, 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 you know, that would leave a lot of people scratching their heads because we all know inflation went, you know, through the roof recently. Um, inflation over the course of them negotiating this contract has been anywhere between a 4% to an 8% increase. So what does that mean? Even on the low end, does that mean that teachers would get a 4% plus one in year one of this contract? That would be, you know, a huge increase to the bottom line of the province. So that's why this negotiation is going to kind of, kind of continue over the next um, a few months. But compensation is a big sticking point, benefits, and as well as other things like the actual experience in the classroom. Educators say they want lower caps on class sizes in kindergarten and uh, primary grades. They want to make sure that kindergarten classrooms always have an ECE in there, regardless of how many students are in there, because they feel like, you know, they, they need additional um, instructors in those classrooms. And they're also calling on um, the, the, the Ford government to make sure that when it comes to split classes, in some grades, they have, you know, 
threes and fours in the same classroom with one teacher, they want to limit the number of split classes there are in public elementary schools. And the government hasn't necessarily presented a counterproposal to some of these classroom size um, limits. You talked about the compensation, Colin, and it being based on inflation. But as you also pointed out, within the year, we have seen inflation jump from eight to four to four to eight, wherever you want to call it, back and forth. Who would determine what that benchmark is? How do you do that? Well, that would all be determined throughout negotiation itself, right? The union itself said uh, they, they would take those numbers and they would kind of come up with a more reasonable figure, suggesting that they're not looking at the highest number possible. Perhaps right. they're looking for, you know, what would be a 2% figure or something along the lines of what we'd see every year. But they'd have to present that to the government. The government would have to agree and accept it. But if this doesn't go the way they're going – there's there's one of two things they could do. Either they could go into mediation and a mediator would help them negotiate and fine tune that number, or they could eventually, you know, withdraw services and really force the government uh, to to increase its offer. But if the government is coming up with 1.25 percent, you could you could tell that the government is really trying to hold the line on these increases as much mm. as possible because you know for every percent that means a huge increase to the bottom line of the province and the province is always kind of thinking about how best to limit the expenditures as much as possible. Uh, we haven't, as you mentioned, heard an awful lot about these negotiations. To their credit, they have uh, kept it out of the media in that respect. When does the rubber hit the road here, Colin? Well, that's an interesting question. A lot of the unions are saying, you know, they don't really have a lot of meeting dates with the province. It depends on which union you're talking to. Some are further along than others. Uh, the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, representing 83,000 members in all of the public elementary schools, they say they're going to keep talking throughout the summer. And, you know, maybe come fall, they'll try to see what happens next. Uh, another union, the uh, OSSTF, the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, is indicating to me that, you know, they don't think a, a deal could be reached in this calendar year. So it's anyone's guess what's going to happen. But the context to all of this, Scott, is, of course, what happened in the fall with the education support workers. We all yeah. remember it was a huge bruising battle. They went on strike. The government imposed a contract, used the notwithstanding clause. There was a threat of a general strike in Ontario. It blew up uh, to, to huge proportions. And then the government climbed down, the union climbed down, and they agreed on a much larger contract um, for, for that union. So I think Everyone looked at that as the worst case scenario. It also drains the parents' willingness to accept and tolerate another strike. And so I think the best position right now for both of these sides is to just keep talking, no matter how long it takes, and see if they can come to some kind of a negotiated deal. So it'll take a while if they're going slow, and no one seems to be in any rush because they all want to get it right for their own parties. We have often heard that these negotiations are left to the last minute, usually in September, what have you. Is it unusual for them to be even talking at this time, Colin? I mean, it is a bit unusual for them to have gone you know, nine months without a contract, but it depends on kind of, you know, whose perspective you take. In some cases, some say it's not unusual. Some say it is a bit long. Uh, but at the end of the day, there is a process, right? If if the union feels like they're not getting to where they want to get or the government, they could issue what's called a no board report, which is basically them saying, we're throwing our hands up in the air. We've gotten as far as we can go. And that then triggers a countdown until the union is in a legal strike position or the government is in a legal 
little lockout position. That deadline, uh, that countdown is about 14 to 17 days. And then, you know, the union has a decision to make. Uh, They could either withdraw some services, you know, extracurricular activities could be canceled as, as an example, or they could you know, completely go on strike, which they may not be willing to do. But ultimately, that's when, and, uh, you know, a, a mediator comes into play, tries to be the adult in the room, goes back and forth, and tries to hammer this out. So we are very far away from that. None of the unions have even taken strike votes, as an example. So I don't think parents have to worry a lot about that. But, you know, if if push really comes to shove, uh, we could start seeing in the next school year, these things get a little bit out of hand. Because remember, the unions have the upper hand as long as kids are in the classroom. When kids are in the classroom, that's when they can threaten to withdraw extracurricular, uh, do a work to rule and withdraw services entirely. And that's where this will the rubber will meet the road. Colin DeMello with us, Queens Park Bureau Chief Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. Colin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me. Yesterday, obviously, uh, heard the news that uh, Paul Bernardo had been moved from a maximum security prison to a minimum security prison. Uh, we talked with Tim Danson, lawyer for the French and Mojave uh, families about this and, and obviously how they were feeling and were given no reasons why and basically told after it had already happened. Uh, so lots of questions uh, coming up and lots of criticism about uh, Correctional Services of Canada, especially from political leaders, about why this could even be allowed to happen, especially considering he was deemed a dangerous offender. Let's bring in Ari Goldkind, Toronto criminal, uh, criminal lawyer and legal expert with us now. Ari, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Great to be with you, Scott. All right, let's start with the the uh, dangerous offender declaration. I remember when Tim Danson was working on that, and and that this was supposed to help with parole in the future, and twenty five years later, and such, or twenty years later, and it seems today that um, the uh, that designation really doesn't have any teeth. What was the purpose of it? Does it work here? Well, it does have teeth, and it does work. What it means is you get an indeterminate sentence. So forget he's sentenced to life with no chance of parole for 25 years, which is the standard sentence most Canadians understand. But his level of dangerousness is so high that he was also made what's called a dangerous offender, which basically means he dies in jail. But he has the right to apply now for parole every two years. That's a big, big part of this story, a really big part of this story, because now that he's going to be to the Laurentians in Quebec, unless this is overturned, he's going to make the families, and you just mentioned Tim Danson, he has the greatest line of all about this matter from two years ago. Remind me to tell you what that is in a moment. They're now going to have to drive out to the Laurentians, unless it's done by Zoom or video, to say that this monster doesn't get out. I do see all of the politicians today, I really do, all getting on the same bus, all on the same conversation. The problem, Scott, is that we're missing really the big point here because we all unanimously agree this was stupid and Bernardo shouldn't have been uh, transferred or shouldn't be, but we're missing, I think, the most important takeaways in this story. Which is? Somebody needs to explain to me, or you know that... That, that phrase, make it make sense, that we sometimes use. So you had Tim Danson on, the lawyer for the French and the half families. Remember, there's also 13 women that he yeah. raped. He tends yeah. to forget those 13 people who are as much victims as anybody else, okay? And they have to live with these scars, all right? Somehow, when the services of Canada 
paid for by you and your listeners, paid for by you and your listeners, let's not forget that, decide to do this. Remember, Scott, when we want to know why, when we want some accountability, why, when we want to know why some dumb bureaucrat decided this was a good idea, and why Ann Kelly, the person at the head of the correction services, said, yeah, this is a great idea. Let's move them from hard time to easier time. You, as the taxpayer, you, as the person paying for this, and more importantly, the French and Mahaffey families are not entitled to know why this move is being made. And what's the point? Somehow Paul Bernardo's privacy in a country that has lost its way, we really have lost our way here. Somehow Paul Bernardo's privacy trumps the rights of the public to have transparency or even the families to understand why this is done. Nobody will make it make sense to me, even if I put on my traditional pure defense lawyer hat and say, yes, it's private medical information and you don't want people to know, you know, his medication. That's all such horseman, you're Scott. And that to me is the bigger part of the story because we all agree on Bernardo. We all do. But are we having an honest conversation in our society, for example, with the youth, you know, that are blowing up fireworks on TTC cars, stabbing people, running around, and they all get to hide with anonymity, the Youth Criminal Justice Act, Bernardo's privacy. If sunlight is the greatest antiseptic, which I believe it is, Scott, we are literally living not only in madness, but in darkness. Uh, and considering where we are right now uh, with police officers that have passed in the line of duty, as you mentioned, uh, criminal activity, this really does seem tone deaf. Well, it's tone deaf because it also sends a message. If the criminal justice system is about messages, it's about moral blameworthiness. Look, if you have a good reason, Scott, now this is the part where I think the audience will not like what I'm saying. If you have a good reason to move Bernardo. You need the space. Canada has so many new people, so many new criminals, so many new killers, so many new rapists. Remember, this is a very different country than back when Bernardo existed. That's a conversation for a different day. But if there was a good reason to move Bernardo, you need the space. You need the solitary confinement pod. His needs are better served at another jail. You, you name it. I could go through a whole bunch of them, but yeah. I'm not going to take up your commercial time. If you have that, that rationale, there is no reason whatsoever that shouldn't be conveyed to the public. And when I see, again, in a system that I work in, and I'm a very proud defense lawyer. I'm not a popular person in my job, Scott, like full disclosure. But when you have all of these publication bans, where everything is hidden from the public, because it's this idea that if the public knows, it'll do, it's such horse manure. If you're going to have a system that you're going to be proud of, there is so much more opportunity to explain to the public how the sausage is made. And when they all circle the wagons and say, Bernardo's rights are more important than the French and Mahaffey families, we've lost the plot. Mm. What can the prime minister do? So that's really interesting because you may have seen literally in the last little while, I mean, little while, Scott, Pierre Polyev, who full disclosure, I put my biases out so people understand my biases. I'm a fan of his on many issues, but he just came out and said, Justin Trudeau can reverse this tomorrow 
And in fact, all mass murderers should spend their time in maximum security and Trudeau should order that. That's actually not right. That's not true. It might be an interesting talking point with good spirit behind it. We all want the Bernardos and the Pictons of the world to do hard time. Well, we don't have a death penalty, so hard time is the next thing. But you really are supposed to have a bureaucracy, not a political body, not a partisanship, unless they change the legislation. You should have a correctional service that operates at some arm's length, pursuant to their legislation and policy. This is not a situation where I want the prime minister just being able to dictate to bureaucracies what should or shouldn't be done. And if people disagree with me, okay, write legislation where we build and create a maximum security jail for people like Bernardo, and we actually have legislation voted on in the House of Commons, then goes to the Supreme Court that says, fine, there's no separation between church and state. Trudeau does it. I don't like the idea that because the CSC, the correction services, makes such a jack, well, I'm not going to use the word posterior, a jack posterior, let's use posterior (laughs) instead of the word I'm going to use, such a stupid decision that somehow it means you have to change the CSC and the policies for everything. Bad situations often make for bad policy changes. This is a unicorn and should be treated as such. All right, literally no time left. Will this be reversed, do you think? I think there's so much public pressure now. My short answer is I think it's quite possible. And if it is, it tells you how stupid it was in the first place. I'd rather Mm. than come out and say, you know what? We're going to explain why we did it. And if you don't like it, go shove it. That I'd have more respect for. Ari Goldkind with us, Toronto criminal lawyer on uh, Paul Bernardo being moved from a maximum security facility to a medium. Ari Goldkind, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Great to be with you, Scott. Scott Radley show coming up after the six o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, Doing fine. How are you doing? So far, so good. Let's talk sports. There's an idea. Okay. Uh, Live Golf and the PGA are now married. What is going on here? Uh, this went from hating each other to loving each other. I think a lot of people are surprised here. I think you're making some assumptions when you say loving each other. I'm, I'm not, I don't think this is going to be a, uh, an easy relationship to repair, honestly. And I'll tell you why. Um, let us say, Scott, that you are working away here at 900 CHML, dry, you know, driving great ratings and everything else, and it's the, the station you've always wanted to work at, but some startup station says, you know what, Scott, if you come and work for me, we'll pay you $2 million a year. But, Smell you later. But Jeff's story says, hey, but if you go, just understand the door is not open for you to come back. And mm-hmm. you know what? All the other people who are working here who have similar options decide I'm going to stick around and show loyalty to the station, but you do what you said, you said, you go off. How do you think they are going to react if all of a sudden you come back with your giant wad of cash and the station here goes, oh, it's okay. Come on back. And they have all rejected that money to be loyal. Like Tiger Woods turned down reportedly $800 million to join live. So now will they get that now? Will there be some incentive? Well, they're going to get their money, I guess, because they've still signed for it. But now all the people who stuck with the PGA Tour and were loyal probably feel like giant schmucks because they're sitting here going, well, why did I not go and get my giant payday and then come back here? We were told it was never going to happen. So I, I, 
I really don't know that the players who were loyal are going to look at the guys who went for the easy payday and welcome them with open arms. And the really the issue here, the guy who's in charge of the PGA tour, Jay Monahan, who's the commissioner, I think he is going to be having a hard time holding on to this position because the folks who stuck around on his word are now going to be saying, wait a second, you cost me tens, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars, and then you back down. What's going on? So will that loyalty be compensated for? Will that be rewarded for in any way? Like, we know these guys went out and did it, and we've changed your minds and stuff, but now we're going to give you this, so, you know, hopefully that'll help ease the pain. Mm. Um, I doubt it. I doubt it. I mean, the, the purses have gone up in the P, on the PGA Tour, but, again, how, how in the world do you re- recompense, is that the right word, Tiger Woods for the money that he turned down, or Rory McIlroy, or any of these guys who turn down enormous money because they believe in the PGA tour. They believe in the history of it. They, their, their legacy to them was valuable and they didn't want to take off and go where nobody was watching. How do you possibly give that kind of money to them? You can't. Is it one or the other now, or they've merged and it's both. So shouldn't everybody be happy? (laughs) Well, again, I, you know, People are human, Scott. If you, again, let, let's say in my example before, let's say it was Bill Kelly that left and he was told you're not going to be able to come back, but he went and took a huge payday and you said, mm-hmm. no, I'm going to stay here because I'm loyal and Bill's loyal to her. Just using an example. Uh, but let's say you said, no, I'm loyal. I'm going to stay. And then Bill walks back. Yeah, you're getting his... too close to home here. I'm starting to cry. Well, now you're, he's got his giant <laughs> wallet and his job back. You're probably looking at this going, wait a second. So I just got screwed over somehow. That's how I think Where a lot of them go? are going to feel. Where does this go? Where do, how does this, like, because again, early details and early information, not a lot of detail at this point. How does, how does this story change by the end of the week? Uh, by the end of the week, I don't know. As I said, I, I think there's going to be some real question about whether the commissioner of the PGA tour is going to be able to keep his job. Cause I think there's going to be a bunch of people who are really, really sour at him for letting this happen. Uh, how long will the... So do the people that are with Liv still get to play and make all that money with Liv? Or do they, does this just mean they get to go back and forth between the two? Well, there won't be two now. So uh, it seems as though... So it is just one. It'll. Get, I think it runs till the end of the season. They're going to let it go and sort of run its course. But I, like, w- there's details. We're just learning about all this stuff now. But Scott, if if, yeah. if someone signed a contract and left and said, you're paying me this much, I can only assume that they're going to still be honoring that money. That would have to be. Otherwise you're going to have lawsuits coming out every corner of this thing. It's going to be such a mess. So I don't know. I don't know, but I just, I just, I can't believe understanding a little bit of the human condition that those people who didn't go because they were being loyal are going to be thrilled with this. All right, Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Have a great show, Scott. Thanks, Scott. See you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. The email from Mr. Lowe. 
Today marks the 79th anniversary of the D-Day landing at Normandy, France, a day when thousands of young soldiers from Canada, Great Britain, America, other free nations stormed ashore that morning in the cause of freedom. Many knew the possibility that they would never see their loved ones again. Many made the ultimate sacrifice that morning on those beaches. We owe this generation continued thanks for the freedoms we enjoy today, lest we never forget Mr. Lowe. Nighty-night. 